Our gospel reading for this first Sunday of Advent comes from Mark chapter 13. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. These are the words of our Savior. In those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It's like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to to his servants and to each his work and commanding the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest, coming suddenly, he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. As far as the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we praise you and we give you thanks and we ask you to strengthen us by your word today. Father, uh, give me grace and uh, ability to speak clearly and to articulate these truths for your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this uh, is definitely different, isn't it? We all got new spots and I'm going to have to look in different spots to find you and make sure you're here and in your spot. Um, And uh, I feel so high up here. uh, So... So much higher than normal, but I'm so thankful to Dell, and I'm thankful to our deacons uh, for pr- preparing this space for us and for putting this all together. I'm very thankful to have this place um, while we set things up out at the uh, out of the property over the next several months. Um, we turn to uh, Mark chapter 13 for our um, first Sunday in Advent. Over the over Advent, I'm going to be going through the lectionary readings, looking at the gospel readings and the epistle readings, mostly for the next several weeks, and uh, and and gaining our insights and our our meditations for the season from there. If you watch the financial news or a lot of political news, or God forbid, if you spend much time listening to sports talk uh, radio, it seems like every guest on any of these shows is a prophet. Prognosticism uh, and prognostication is a big business. If, if you're able to give people the impression that you can tell the future, that you have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen in the financial markets or what's going to happen in the political realm or what's going to happen in the bowl games, you can gain quite a following. The future is a dark and mysterious place. The future is a place none of us has ever been. And so when somebody acts as if they are able to penetrate that darkness and take you by the hand and lead you into the future and they know what's going on, well, then they're going to get some attention. And why not? Who wouldn't love to know exactly what is going to happen in the next three months in the stock market or in the sports world? You could could really clean up if you knew which stocks to buy right now or you knew which uh, teams to, to bet on. The problem is, is that the only tool that anybody has ever had to employ for prediction is statistical models. I mean, unless you're going to just roll the dice, the, the, only, the only thing that we have to rely on is statistical models based on past events. We attempt to use the past 
to help us tell the future. And on the surface, that sounds like a pretty good strategy. You like to say in business, and I know you've heard this before, that past performance is the best indicator of future success. And yet built into that uh, statement that, that past performance is the best indicator of future success, built into that is the assumption that we understand the past. Built into that is the assumption that we're asking the right questions about the past. That, that when we look at history to help us understand the future, we actually understand the, the, the history that we are looking at. And the historical data is relevant to the future questions we're hoping to answer. The most, most, most accurate statistics on rainfall in the Amazon basin over the last 10 years, those statistics are not going to help me predict batting averages in the American League over the next 10 years. Those, those two things are absolutely unrelated, and I can't go to one to help me understand the other. And so uh, an appeal to history is, is not enough. Whose history? What history? Is it reliable history? And am I asking the right questions of history? And, and while we struggle to get a grip on the past, our understanding of the present may be even more unreliable. Do you really understand what is happening to you today by living in this society with the technology and environment and diet and lifestyle that we all have? Do you really know what's being done to you? Do you, do you know how it's affecting you? Do you, do you know uh, how these daily liturgies that we've just, uh, just adopt, how they're shaping us and how they're shaping our children? I was uh, reading a good book on the age of invention and uh, a funny thing about American inventors, you know, in, in Europe, they lived for centuries in uncomfortable, dark houses with no amenities and they just accepted discomfort as a way of life. And uh, you get to the new world and Americans start inventing things just because they can. They invent things, whether or not they actually have a use, they, they just, once, once we discover electricity, we just start inventing everything that can plug into a wall. And uh, we, we invent things and we start using them before we understand what they're doing to us and how they're affecting us. And so we have a very, uh, a very loose grasp on the past, a very uncertain uh, uh, understanding of the present. And so we are sort of like the turkey in the barnyard when it comes to predicting the future. The turkey gets fed every day. From the day he hatches, he gets fed by his owner. And he has this daily pattern, this daily liturgy. I go around the barnyard and I peck and I strut and this guy feeds me and I eat and I get fat every single day. The turkey has no grasp on the history of agriculture. He has no understanding on the history of animal husbandry. He doesn't understand these things. And he doesn't even know about Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is not on his radar. He doesn't understand his purpose within the farm. And so every day that goes by, he watches and relies upon his limited understanding of a pattern that makes him not better prepared for the future, but less prepared for the future. Nothing is in his entire experience prepares him for what's about to happen on the day before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving comes as a total shock because he doesn't understand the present and he has a limited skewed perspective on his own history. He is in a completely unreliable authority on the future. The turkey cannot be relied upon on the future. So if you don't get anything else of what I, out of what I say today, don't trust turkeys. Don't take stock tips from turkeys. Don't, don't trust them. If a turkey tells you who's going to win the uh, national championship, 
Don't, don't believe it. That's, that's not reliable. Well, the turkey has the same problem as all human prognosticators, relying as they do on their own limited analysis of the past and their poor understanding of the present, they can never really predict the big, important, unexpected things that we all wish that we knew ahead of time. Man is limited. We don't know the future. And remember also, I've said this several times, man is finite and it's not a sin to be finite. It's not a sin to not know the future. It's not a sin to not be able to predict the future. But God has given us his history. He has given the history of his people. God has given us things to look out for, and he has given us some expectations for the future. And unless you and I want to be like the turkey, then we must have a Christian perspective on what God has said is coming in the future. We must have a Christian perspective on prophecy, and that demands a Christian perspective on history. I want to say just a word about prophecy in the Bible before we spend some time on history. Prophecy in the Bible when you, when you think of what a prophet does, it's not simply uh, a bunch of predictions about future events, most of them frightening. I think that's what we, when you get down into Ezekiel or Jeremiah or some of the minor prophets, it's all very uh, uh, scary and, and, and revelation if you're reading it uh, in, a, in a certain way. It looks, it looks very frightening. It doesn't seem comforting at all. And so our assumption is that prophecy is... Uh, the prediction of future scary events. But prophecy is not that primarily. Prophecy is God's way of bringing judgment against a society. When God wants to judge a nation, he sends prophets. And prophets come to correct, to restore, to reform. Now, their message then is corrective, it's restorative, it is reformational, and it contains the predictive, and more often than not, the prediction is, if you do not turn, if you do not repent, this is what's coming. And if you do turn and repent, well, then you can expect this to happen. And so in our lectionary readings throughout the season of Advent, through this Lord's Day, you heard it already, watch. You've heard, uh, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. You've heard these things. These are, the, these are the readings throughout the Advent season. This is the season full of expectation for the way that the Lord Jesus comes to us and all the different ways that he, that he comes to us in judgment, in blessing, at the end of the age, uh, the, and the way he came at the incarnation. As we get closer to Christmas, we, we, we turn a corner and we start reflecting on all the promises of the incarnation. So this season of the church year is full of these themes, these uh, ideas of, of the, the coming day of the Lord. The season of Advent is full of the prophetic, and we'll hear a lot of this over the next several weeks. But again, prophecy always fits into a structure of history. In our gospel reading this morning, the Lord Jesus says, you know this, when the branch has become ten tender and puts forth leaves, you know that the summer is near. You know how to look for things around you and you know because you've studied them in the past, you know how things are going to turn out in the future. You're used to watching patterns. You're used to paying attention. Prophecy then is delivered to a people in a specific time and place in a societal context in the context of a covenant. And so for us to read and understand prophecy, it must be read and received by us and understood as a message primarily to a specific time and 
place. So you and I wouldn't read Noah's prophecy of a coming worldwide flood and think, oh my goodness, we better get some flood insurance. We, we better build boats. We don't read Noah's prophecy that way. We understand Noah's prophecy was to a time and a place. We don't read Jeremiah's uh, judgment on Judah as if it were line by line applied to to us. We don't read Daniel's visions of the coming kingdoms of men and, and how he uh, outlined his future. The things that Daniel prophesies happen in his future, but that doesn't mean that they're in our future. Daniel's prophecy contains many things that have already happened. But we're not going to understand any of this, and we're going to miss big things if we don't have a handle on history and and in this context, the, the, the history into which the prophecy came. So a couple of things uh, that we have to uh, get a grip on if we're going to have a Christian perspective, a Christian understanding of history. The first thing we must grasp in order to have a Christian perspective on history is that God is the author of history. When I say God is the author of history, I don't mean that he wrote something in a dusty book that you'll find at the back of the library where no one goes anymore. God is an active writer of present events. He has not stopped writing. He has been writing and he continues to write. God has always shaped human history and he continues to be actively engaged in the events of mankind and of society. As an active superintendent over the world, this means God is always moving and changing and shifting and renewing things and making things new. And that means the things that we're used to are going to change. The future is going to be different than it is right now. We don't live in a circle of life. We don't live in a Buddhist or a Hindu or a, uh, a a reincarnational loop. We're not stuck in a loop. God is writing history, and it is a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. This means things are going to change, and that frustrates us. It frustrates me to have to move a congregation out of a nice, cozy place where I've got my desk, and I've got my windows, and I could watch the geese, and it was just, I could have people in my office, and we could have coffee in a comfortable space, and all this is just shaken up, and now, now we, got, we got something new. The Lord has something new for us, and this is how he works. He, he, he drags us and pushes us and, and, and forces us into the future because he's writing a story. History's not static. Your lives are not static. The church is not static. We're moving and we're, we're, we've, we've got a place that we're going. So God is actively engaged, always making things new. The future is going to be different. And the trends that are going on right now are not going to stay the same all the way into the future. God will continue to do something new and different. And this is just seen. God is always doing surprising things in history. Nobody living in the middle of the 15th century could have predicted the age of exploration. There was nothing... Uh, to I, unless you were just some kind of wizard, there, there was nothing in the, in the Middle Ages that would help you understand that over the next 100, 150, 200 years, the globe would look different and your sense of space in the world would be a different thing. Nobody could anticipate that. The trends in the Middle Ages didn't lead inevitably to Columbus. But God shook up the world. He made a new kind of man called an explorer, which created a new kind of society and made a whole new world in a way of viewing the world and seeing the world that nobody had ever seen before. Even in our own lifetimes, in, 19, 
86, who thought that the Soviet Union would break up and would fall so decisively, so definitively, so quickly? Who thought that the Berlin Wall was going to come down with such finality? And so suddenly, but this is, how, this is how God works. He invades history and he shakes things up and he does things that surprise us and things we would never predict. The day of the Lord comes to nations like Thanksgiving Day comes to the turkey. It comes unexpectedly. And many times it feels like it comes out of nowhere, like no one could have predicted it. And the only ones who know what's going on are, are those who know something about the farmer and what's really going on on the farm. So this is why uh, we need a biblical perspective on history, that, that God is an active author of history. Let me give you some, some scripture data points that, that back up this point. A few from the Psalms. Psalm 103, Yahweh has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, for I know that Yahweh is great and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever Yahweh pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all the depths. And, and one more from Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar praises God and he says about God, he says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Over and over and over, we hear the testimony that God is an active, sovereign author of history. God is writing history. Now build up on that and one more point. The second equally important understanding that we must wrap ourselves around is that Bible history is the center and it's at the core and the driving force of all other history. Now, I'm gonna repeat that and then I want you to think about how unpopular and how outdated and how so very fundamentalist that sounds to the modern ear, but I'm gonna say it again. Bible history is the center and the core and the driving force of all other history. Uh, one popular view among uh, liberal scholarship is that the Bible is like a holy storybook. That, that what happens in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, it's as if it happened in another world, in a, in a story time land somewhere but not this world, or, or that what happens in the Bible is a glamorized version of what happened. Everything's just kind of blown out of proportion for dramatic effect, but, but you can't really go to the Bible to find reliable history. So for example, they would say there, there wasn't really a worldwide flood. There was just, it, it just got really unseasonably wet in one corner of uh, one, one place, and, and they just kind of blew that all out of proportion. There wasn't a worldwide flood, or, or Moses didn't cross the Red Sea with two and a half million uh, sla Hebrew slaves and, and a mixed multitude. That really didn't happen. He didn't really cross the Red Sea. It was about 350 uh, 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 runaway slaves, and they, they kind of crossed a, a swamp or, or like a bayou or a marshy little area. Uh, and and that's, that's, a popular, that's a popular view, that everything is just kind of glamorized, just kind of blown out of proportion. Another popular view held by some evangelicals is that the Bible history 
is simply devotional or it's, or it's only inspirational. The Bible is just full of timeless truths. And by timeless, they mean they, they stand. But what they really mean is that they're not really located in a place with a people in history. That's what they, that's what they really mean. The Bible is just these timeless truths. It's not important whether these things really took place. It's not important whether David really killed a giant named Goliath. All that's important is the lesson contained in the story. So whether or not you actually believe that David killed a giant, that's, that's irrelevant. What's relevant is that God helps you face your fears. That's, that's all you need. Well, if that's all we needed, then these things really didn't need to have happened, and we don't even need, we don't even need the stories. So, so many evangelicals approach history the way they do science. So I go to government school, and I learn that the world is 57 bajillion years old, and that I descended from an amoeba, but then I go to Sunday school, and my Sunday school teacher tells me that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And I can hold these two things in my head at the same time, and though they are competing and contradictory, that's okay. I'm okay with that, and I don't have a problem with that. And so, so that's our approach to science in the evangelical world, and in the same way we approach history this way. I go to school, and I learn that that human history is, uh, uh, is running along a certain track. And every time we come across Bible history, well then, and Bible history is marginalized if they mention it at all. And you hear things like, well, Hammurabi obviously preceded Moses. And Moses got all of his best ideas, not from God at the top of Mount Sinai, but Moses got his ideas from Hammurabi, for example. And, and so we hear that and we kind of compartmentalize it. And then we go hear Bible history, but Bible history happens in storybook land and real history, classical history, happened in the real world. And so we have this partition mind that we, we try to keep straight. And we carry both around in our heads. I want to tell you, especially young people, because you're going to come across this if you haven't already. Your teachers, professors, when you, when you get to college especially, are going to do everything they can. Even the sweet Christian professors who are, who are just vaguely, you know, some kind, of, some kind of Episcopal or some kind of Methodist. They're going to do everything that they can to undermine your faith by trying to help you hold this partition in your brain that real history is over here and Bible history is unreliable and it's just glamorized. I want you to smell it. I want you to sniff it out so that you can reject it, so that you can discard it because it is so pervasive. I want you to recognize it and reject it. Bible history, the story of God's covenants with a specific people in time on earth is the core and it is the driving force of all other history. And this is how God works. He moves and he shapes and he grows the entire human race by working with a part of it. And the ripples and the effects of what he does with this group, his people, it goes out to the rest of the world. And so throughout the Bible, we see him steering things from the center, which, which affects everything at the periphery. So he, he calls Israel, he deals with them, he covenants with them, he makes them a kingdom of priests. He gives them a special diet, special clothes, special celebrations, sacrifices to perform, things they must not touch, uh, things they may not eat. Why? Because they're a kingdom of, of priests. They intercede on behalf of the whole world in their worship. And it's through them 
that the Messiah comes and the Messiah bears the sin of the whole world. God deals with a specific people and then he grafts nations into them uh, with, with his people at the center. That's the story of the Bible. Bible history is not a story that happens in fairy tale land. It isn't a collection of abstract, timeless stories with no content, only morals. Bible history is the core of human history directed by God. Bible history reveals humanity under God's control. Now, there's so much more to say there, but I'm going to drive right to our, our gospel uh, reading this morning with some of this in our pocket. Now we come to Mark chapter 13, which is a prophetic discourse from Jesus. And it's widely understood by people in our day to be Jesus is telling things about, he's talking about things that are happening not only in the future of the apostles, but in our future as well, that we all can expect these things to happen and they will happen because they haven't happened yet. They're in our future. But we think this way because we don't understand history. We don't understand what God was doing with Israel. And we're not paying attention to the questions being asked of Jesus and the answers that he's actually giving. We assume that what the disciples are asking about and what Jesus is answering with is information about the end of the universe, about the end of space and time, about the end of life, the universe, and everything here. That's what we expect, which is the furthest thing from their mind. That's not what they're asking about. If we read the chapters leading up to 13, Jesus has just had his triumphal entrance into the city of Jerusalem, riding on the back of a colt, the foal of a donkey, and he proceeds directly from there to the temple complex where he pronounces destruction on the temple and he symbolizes that destruction by turning over tables, uh, uh, beating and running out some money changers and creating a, a scene there. And then he heads out from the temple to a fig tree, remember, where he uh, curses the fig tree. It withers, it dies, demonstrating exactly what's going to happen to the fruitless worship at the temple. And after, after this, he sits in the temple courtyard and he answers the questions of the scribes and Sadducees and Pharisees and Herodians. And while he's sitting there answering their questions, he comments on a widow who throws her uh, small amount of money into the collection. And he, held, he holds her up as an example of one who really cares about the house of the Lord, contrasting all those who are indignantly defending the temple without really caring about what's going on there and who are really bringing its ruin. So the point of all this is that since Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem, the focus of his words and actions have all been about the temple. It's been temple, 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 temple since he arrived. And all this builds up to chapter 13, where the apostles ask, okay, Jesus, you kind of see all this stuff around here? When, when's all this stuff going to happen? When, when is all this going to take place? When is all this coming down? If we read at the beginning of chapter 13, we, we hear their question. As Jesus went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, See what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Look at all this grand architecture. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you not see, do, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, 
when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? They're asking the question not when are you going to destroy every atom in the cosmos? When are you going to, when are you going to blow everything up? They're asking about the end of the temple. And Jesus lays out what they can expect. He sets his apostles on alert and he gives them a sense of the impending destruction that's headed for Jerusalem. He's not going to get them all riled up about something that's going to take a couple thousand years to happen. That would be playing with them. That would be toying with them. He's speaking with urgency because the things that he talks about here are imminent. They're close. They're just around the corner. Of course, you and I don't have to puzzle through when these things are supposed to happen. In verse 30, Jesus says explicitly, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. And so if you want to take Matthew chapter 24, and if you want to take the book of Revelation, and you want to take Mark 13 and Luke 22, I believe, and if you want to put them on a chart and take all these events and say, this is how things are going to happen, and this is what order they're going to happen, do whatever you do to make your interpretation. But the end date, the expiration date for all these events, Jesus says explicitly, is this generation. He says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. You've got about 40 years to fit these things in. And of course, they do fit in. Uh, all this happens before the end of the lives of those here in this time, in this generation. Everything that Jesus says points to a local first century fulfillment. And some of these things that Jesus says here wouldn't make sense beyond that context, certainly not in the 21st century. Jesus says, for example, he says, you're going to be flogged in synagogues. Is that, is that something that's happening in our future, that we're going to be flogged? <laughs> Where, can you find a synagogue? Do you know where any are? Do you, are there any synagogues anywhere? Well, when did that happen? That did happen. It happened in the infancy of the church. It happened in the book of Acts. No Christians are getting flogged in synagogues today, nor should we expect them to be. Jesus said, you will testify before governors and kings. Did that happen? Yes. Paul came before governors and kings, and so did some of the others. That clearly happened in the book of Acts. Jesus says the gospel must be first preached to all nations. This is fulfilled primarily on the day of Pentecost, and then it continues to be fulfilled throughout Acts as the missionaries go out taking the gospel to every corner of the world. He talks about the abomination of desolation. That's not some future uh, despot who rules over the entire world. Um, not some supervillain. There's a strong case to be made that the abomination of desolation is the high priest, the high priest of Israel, who is responsible for rejecting the Messiah and delivers Messiah to his death. Jesus warns people that, that if you're in Judea, you need to escape the wrath by fleeing into the mountains. If Jesus is talking about final judgment here, if he's talking about the end of space and time, how will fleeing to the mountains save you from that? How, how, how can you flee final judgment by running to the mountains? That wouldn't make sense. 
Furthermore, earthquakes, famines, false messiahs, these all start to show up in the book of Acts as well. There's nothing here that indicates that he's talking about something that's going to happen to people who haven't been born yet. What he is talking about is the death of the world of the old covenant, the melting down of all the elements and the destruction of the world of the old covenant containing the temple and all the activity that goes on there and the resurrection of a new world, which is the church with Jesus at the center. There is in fact a new heavens and a new earth. Everything runs differently than it did before now that we live on this side of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Well, there are other things here. You might ask, well, you read just a minute ago about the sun getting dark and the stars falling. When, 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 did, that, when did that happen? Well, I think everybody here knows, as I remind you every once in a while, that Isaiah speaks the same way back in chapter 13. Isaiah speaks this way about the fall of Babylon. This is what Isaiah says about the fall of Babylon. He says, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Well, when did that happen? It happened the night the lights went out in Babylon. Earthly rulers and, and nations are always being associated with the lights that govern the day and the night. And to say that the stars went out for Babylon is a way of saying that her rulers bit the dust. Ezekiel uses the very same language to talk about Egypt. In Ezekiel 32, the lights go out for Babylon, the lights go out for Egypt. And here Jesus says the lights are going to go out for Jerusalem. The lights are going to go out over the temple. Well, here's another thing. There's another thing we read. What about the Son of Man will come in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Surely you're not saying that happened within that generation, I think we would have heard of that. Well, we think that way because we read these things in isolation and we don't have a grip on the Old Testament or the language of the prophets. Jesus talks this way and he talks about coming in the clouds in the way the prophets use this language repeatedly throughout the scriptures. When the Lord is, is said to bless his people or to judge the wicked, the word is used visit. He is said to visit them. He visits his people to give them food and Ruth. When Hannah gets an answer in her prayer for her son, we read that the Lord visited Hannah. And when the Lord judges a city like Tyre, we read the Lord will visit Tyre. So we get an idea of him coming, not in a way that he pops out of the sky, but that he moves to bless or to judge. This is how he visits. This is how he comes. He visits his people in the wilderness. How? In a cloud. And so when Jesus mentions clouds here, he's speaking the way that Isaiah spoke about the judgment of Egypt in Isaiah 19. This is what Isaiah says again. The oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Now, the glory cloud is very likely made up of his heavenly host, his angelic host. And, and God is saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to come with a cloud. I'm going to come with my angelic army and we are going to destroy you unless you turn from your idols. So uh, this, is, this, is how Jesus is, this is how Jesus is speaking. When he talks about the gathering of the elect by the angels, Jesus, you know that the word angel means messenger and his messengers are the apostles who go out to preach the gospel to every nation. Again, Jesus is not talking about some distant appearing in, 
in the sky over a city, but his coming in judgment. And not that this is going to happen in the far future for the apostles, but that it's going to happen in their lifetime. He says repeatedly, this is near. Verse 29, he says, this is at the doors, not millennia away. Everything that Jesus says in Mark 13 is fulfilled roughly in the next 40 years from the time that he said it. In, in roughly 40 years later, the world experienced birth pangs as the new creation was born out of the old world. There's turmoil, there's death, there's destruction, there's devastation everywhere as the old world passes away. And the new world of Jesus, the new world of life and resurrection, uh, this, this world is given birth. Where the curse is being undone and the serpent's head is being crushed, that's the new world that's being born. Now then the question for us if it's true that these dire warnings that Jesus gave are primarily for people 2,000 years ago, what good are these things for us? When Jesus says, watch then, what does that mean for me and you? Have we drained them of their potency and their urgency? Have we rendered them uh, irrelevant? No, emphatically no. No more than we have marginalized Noah's warnings to his world or Moses' warnings to Pharaoh, or Jeremiah's warnings to Judah. Because we have a Christian view on history, because we know that God is the author of all events in the world, he's the author of all events yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and we know that he works with a specific people in a specific time and place. That's the story of how he runs the whole world. He steers from the center. So here we read about Jesus declaring judgment on his own house, the temple, the land, his people. And he's bringing this judgment to pass quickly, just as he said it would happen. And because we know Noah and Jeremiah and Moses, and we know that this is what happens to all nations and all peoples who reject the Lord Jesus and reject him as king. He visits them in judgment, riding on a cloud. Jerusalem's destruction was significant and extraordinary, but so was the flood. So was the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the plagues on Egypt. They, they all stand as demonstrations of the extent of the Lord's judgment. So we can add the fall of Jerusalem that Jesus is predicting here and Jesus is telling about here. We can add the fall of Jerusalem to the collection of all warnings to all the nations who insist that Jesus is irrelevant. We say, this is what happens when you reject Jesus. And it's the foreshadowing of the greater judgment yet to come where all men will stand in judgment before the throne of God. So there remains an urgency indeed in Jesus' words today. There's still a serious need for all nations and all men to repent and turn to him lest they become like Jerusalem. At the same time, lest we forget in all of this talk of judgment, lest we forget the mercies of our Lord and only focus on his wrath, it's important to point out that everything that Jesus says here, everything he says is going to happen to the inhabitants of Jerusalem Everything happens to him first. Everything that he says is going to happen to his people, it happens to him first. Jesus takes the full brunt of the impact of the judgment of God on their behalf so that they don't have to go through all this if they just turn and repent. Here's some things that Jesus says. Jesus says, brother will betray brother to death. Did that happen to Jesus? Well, certainly. Jesus was betrayed to death by his brother and he was denied by another brother. 
Jesus warns them to flee, leaving their cloaks behind. Well, does that happen to Jesus? Well, yeah, he's stripped. His clothes are torn and gambled over by soldiers. Jesus warns of floggings. Jesus is flogged. Jesus says, you will answer to rulers and kings. Jesus stands before Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate. Jerusalem is eventually going to be destroyed by Rome for her revolution and her rebellion against Rome. That very same charge is leveled against Jesus. Jesus is executed for his supposed rebellion. Jesus takes all of the medicine that is in store for Jerusalem. Jesus then is at the center of the center. As God steers the world from the center by, by working with his people, so Jesus is at the center of the center. In fact, when Jesus prays to the Father to forgive those who are killing him, he's buying Jerusalem more time through his death and intercession. He's giving the apostles one more chance to offer the gospel to Jerusalem. Before the little T temple is destroyed, the, the stone temple, the big T temple is destroyed. Jesus, the temple, is destroyed on the cross. The difference is that the big T temple, capital T temple, is going to be resurrected and he's exalted and he's given dominion over the world and the little t temple lays in ruins. So think and keep this near the center of you is that God steers history from the center with his people and Jesus is at the center of that center. The events of his life are the most important events in all human history. That's why we have a whole calendar of celebrations that follow the events of his life. Jesus is at the center, and here's the good news of the gospel, is that you belong to him at the center. By our union with him, we are at the center with him. That means we are at the center of history, the history that the Father is writing. And I say this because I know there are some of you who fear that God's future for you or God's future for the world, or God's future for our nation, or God's future for your family, that it's not pleasant, and it's not kind, and he doesn't have good things for you, and that it's all misery and hopeless, and it's all getting worse. I know that some of you feel that and think that. Whether you would articulate it or not, you have that dread, you have that fear, you have that worry. And I'm telling you that because we have this perspective, you can know that, and meditate on this, that the God who has written all of history holds you and his son at the center of history. His son is the hero of the story and you are with him. How does that, how's that going to work out? How do you think that's going to work out? You are at the center of history with his son at the center. Meditate on this in the season of waiting and anticipation and the season of preparation and looking forward to all the ways the Lord comes to us, know how close you are to the center of the story that God is writing and how he has set his affections on you. So much more to stay. We'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for your son, Jesus. And we thank you for being a active uh, a attentive and a, and a constantly engaged God. You have not left us to our own devices. You haven't allowed us to just wander and flounder, but you are engaged and you are ever present and you are sovereign over all, 
all events. And so we give you the honor and the glory and the praise for all the ways you come to us and especially as you come to us this day to correct us, to strengthen us, to encourage us, and to feed us. And we give you thanks for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.